It's finally here. Episode 2 of the Prehistoric Prairie Series. Nicholas and I have been putting in the extra hours to get this one ready for release, and it's finally done! We still have one more episode in production, but for now, enjoy this second episode as we dive into the history of our North American prairies. As we progress in our historic journey, we are leaving the last ice age and now heading into the time when indigenous people populated, interacted with, and maintained the prairie. You will find there is much more to the story than you may have ever expected. So grip that steering wheel or pedal that exercise bike and crank the volume. It's time to jump into the time machine and learn. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sohold. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to The Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. A little disclaimer as we dive into this discussion. Both Nicholas and myself are well aware of the controversies and sensitivities that exist when discussing ancient history. One reason for this is there is very little information that can be known with certainty. But the other is that there are many religious and cultural interpretations that exist in regards to ancient times. We do not intend to disrespect any person's beliefs and are sharing only the perspectives of our guests. I love this land and the buffalo and will not part with it. I want you to understand well what I say. Write it on paper. I hear a great deal of good talk from the gentleman the great father sends us, but they never do what they say. I don't want any of the medicine lodges within the country. I want the children raised as I was. I have heard you intend to settle us on a reservation near the mountains. I don't want to settle. I love to roam over the prairies. There I feel free and happy. But when we settle down, we grow pale and die. A long time ago, this land belonged to our fathers. When I go up to the river, I see camps of soldiers on its banks. These soldiers cut down my timber. They kill my buffalo. And when I see that, my heart feels like bursting. Those are the words of Kiowa chief Satanta as he faced eviction from the lands he and his people loved and owned. If you feel conflicted by what I just said, Embrace that conflict. It's a hard story to hear about in our nation's past. We didn't get it right then, and we still don't have it right today. And we need to recognize that and search for ways to improve upon our past shortfalls. As we search out those solutions, I think it's best to start by hearing the perspectives of indigenous people groups. And as far as we are concerned here at Hoxie Native Seeds, I think we need to hear their perspectives on the ground we both feel so passionately connected to. Our dear friend Taylor Keene, a member of both the Omaha and Cherokee tribes and the founder of Sacred Seed, helped me begin to understand what prairie represents to Native Americans. When people such as myself, European descent, when we look back at the prairie, you know, the history of the prairie, 
we look at it very much so from a agriculture settlement master the land type of standpoint and i think you know as there's almost like an enlightenment that's like a mini enlightenment that's going on right now about prairie i feel where people are like well maybe we you know shouldn't have done that and and for now for for me somebody you know 10 years ago who would have looked at my family's farming history and you know been proud of that or something you know i almost look back now with you know not that you know you are who you are right you are who you are your family is is part of that for better or for worse but i also now look at it with like a sense of almost sadness like for instance where we sit right now in the Lus hills my it'd be my great great grandfather when he emigrated to america he made his living <clears throat> with a horse and a cart uh, digging up the Los Hills soils, throwing them in his cart and helping fill in the, the bottom land so that they could fill in wetlands and build, you know, towns, expand towns. And I look back almost with a sadness of, man, did you realize what you were destroying, you know? But that is a, I got to think, a totally different uh, way of looking at my side of the history as somebody of Native American descent. So when you think back on the history of the prairies, what types of things come to your mind? Maybe emotions, thoughts, just just history, stories, that kind of thing. Loss. That's the first thing I always think of. Um, I know here in Iowa, um, it's a fraction of less than 1% of how much the land is still prairie and mm-hmm. undisturbed. Mm-hmm. And I always try to look back through the lens of history and to try to see a different world. And the one that I see is very different than mm-hmm. the one that we have today. Um, the yeoman agrarian perspective from mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson and its impact on the formation of uh, Western expansion in the United States uh, was successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally every uh, agrable acre in America is poised for economic farming. Mm -hmm. And I often looked at, you know, the economics of um, subsidies and other politics mm. in the U.S. and the role of the American farmer in the 1970s, mm-hmm. but it goes back to the 1920s and, uh, you know, an absolute colonization mm-hmm. of the land, which included ecocide, mm-hmm. uh, of course, bison and uh, a lot of elk, mm-hmm. uh, the wolf, mm-hmm. um, all those things that are important to tribal peoples. Um but I mean, it was it was nearly a full erasure. Charles mm-hmm. Mann, in his work, uh, 1491 and 1493, 1493 specifically, he talks a lot about the impact of the Columbian Exchange. So mm-hmm. you had seeds and well, flora and fauna from both sides going back and forth, mm-hmm. and uh, the impact of that, of course, you know, led to many things on our side. The uh, Tilling agricultural methods um, resulted in the Dust Bowl. Yeah, yeah. But yet we still till. 
Loss is the first thing that comes to mind for Taylor when he considers Prairie. That's a hard thing to consider. But when I hear him explain the loss that has taken place in the past few hundred years, I can get a small taste of it as well. In most cases, we have lost entire prairies. In the few prairies that remain, we have lost much of the diverse life that once inhabited them. But that sad story is for a later point in this series. For now, let's focus on the majesty of the original prairies, what they were, and who and what lived on them. There's no better way to start than by defining what prairie is. To do this, I asked Karen Visti Sparkman, a biologist for the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge, to define prairie as if she were speaking to extraterrestrial beings who had never heard of prairie before. Here is her response. Prairie is, uh, <laughs> try, try to narrow it down. Um, so it's a, it's an ecosystem. If they know what an ecosystem is, um, uh, it's just a collection of the, the plants and the animals and all the living things, as well as the non-living things here. And the, the vegetation is dominated by grasses and forbs, which are non non-woody plants that are flowering plants um Mm -hmm. so uh that's that's the main vegetation that you see but it's also full of all kinds of living things both above ground and below ground the soil um, the plants have the deep roots and and there's a lot of things living in the soil that i'm not an expert at but from microbes to insects to um you know small mammals and, and all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, so it's basically, yeah, just basically a grassland. Um, and, and what we have here is tall grass prairie. So there are certain uh, of the, the taller grasses, like big blue stem and Indian grass and switchgrass are the, are the dominant grasses in tall grass prairie. Great. Now that we are all on the same page for what prairie is, we can start to look into the different types of prairie. Of course, this list isn't exhaustive, but Karen provides us with a good general description of the different types of prairie. There's different types of prairie, and most mm-hmm. most of this uh, series we've been focusing on tall grass. But if you go out, especially out west, you start mm-hmm. seeing. Could, could you kind of describe some of those different prairie ecosystems that we see out out there? Yeah. Well, as you go further west, you get into the mixed grass, which has um, both tall and short grass and then you get further west and and it's short grass prairie when you say further west how how far are you getting before you get to mixed grass uh mixed grass well even the less hills in iowa or Mm. i think mixed grass and then in nebraska um and then as you get further west western nebraska colorado um, and up in the dakotas that's more short grass prairie sure um and they get less Veg, they get less rainfall, so that's part of the reason it's short, mm-hmm. short uh, prairie, um, and you know because of the rain shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So once it gets further east, the, the further east it gets, the more moisture there is. Uh, so we have the the tall grass prairie hmm. here because there's a lot of rainfall. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to learn about that, and even down into the southwest, down into yeah. like parts of East Texas, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, New Mexico and, and, uh, let's see what else is down there. We well, mentioned 
Colorado, our good friend uh, Laura Walter from the Tallgrass Prairie Center is an original mixed grass, short grass person mm-hmm. down in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so just seeing that change, I think it's important that people can understand that prairie is not just diverse in where it exists, but throughout its range, there's there's mm-hmm. great difference depending on where you are, and, and of course, uh, moisture and soil type right. play. And in. it's not just the height; it's the, you know the different species that grow sure. in those different well, conditions. There you have it. Not all prairies are equal, but they are all equally important. Tall grass, mixed grass, and short grass prairies formed in their respective regions based on the climatic and soil characteristics of their location. This fact should jog your memory back to the first episode in the Prehistoric Prairie series when we discussed the importance of ancient glacial activity that created the rich topsoils that form the foundation for the tall grass prairies of the Midwest. We will get into that detail a little more in a few minutes. But to sum this relationship up, it can be said that the geologic and climatic diversity in an area affects the diversity of the prairie growing there. So how does this diversity look? Is it a perfectly even mixture of all the species? Or is it a more of a hodgepodge quilt-like distribution of the species? Karen answered this question as follows. You know, most people think of of prairie as this this very diverse um you know network like a a very homogenous mixture you know like if you were to cut out a you know one you know a, a one square meter chunk of prairie you'd see 100 species in there and i think that that is certainly uh part of it like in in different parts of the prairie but we were talking with a guy recently who spent a lot of time 33 years working out in a yellowstone park and uh part of his job he observed uh bison and he now is is a uh, a uh, bison i guess you'd say herdsman farmer um but uh he said that he would observe in the winter time bison going down into uh, kind of these marshier areas to get food and how sedges just dominated the, you know, these marshy areas was like the only thing growing or not growing anymore, but, but at, you know, in the growing season would have been kind of the only thing growing there. Does that kind of illustrate what we believe virgin prairie would have been more like, you know, instead of the 100 species in one square meter, it'd be almost like a quilt instead where because this soil type is over here you know these 10 species do very well here and so you're going to see a lot of those 10 things here and down here it's really wet so you got your sedges and your swamp milkweed and your blue vervain and over here the ground is all tore up by buffalo and elk wallows so you see you know hoary vervain and other disturbed ground thriving species or would it been pretty much just the crazy species you know homogenous mixture of of grasses and flowers from everything i've read it's it was a mix i mean you know maybe not every square meter was a mix um and i just want to say about the sedges so you know sedges will grow in wetter places Mm -hmm. so what we have now is along the creek um 
is not what it used to look like at all. You know, the trees coming in and the sure. erosion and stuff. So, so the creeks were more of a shallow, um, you know, sort of a wide, shallow area with that that was wet with um, sedges. But but sedges are not just one species. There's dozens of species of mm-hmm. sedges. So you can sure. have a huge mix of sedges in there. And there's also forbs that grow in those sedge meadows too mm-hmm. that are specific to that that um, ecosystem, the sedge meadow ecosystem. So I, I mean, I from what my understanding, like I said, I wasn't there <laughs> to, sure. to see it historically, but I mean, there was there's a lot of diversity in everything I've I've read about it. So it's, mm, um, sure, there was a huge amount of diversity. It's just it might you know vary on the scale you're talking about mm-hmm. um, the you know whether it was in you know like one square foot or one acre yeah um, you know that kind of thing and there and there's probably and some certain species will form you know dense clumps because of mm-hmm. just their growth habit like if they spread a lot by sure, underground yeah, rhizomes yeah. then they'll they'll form a big big patch sounds like if you were picturing prairie as a complete mixture of many different species that was the right thinking One of the most interesting characteristics about prairie that gets mentioned over and over again is the term diverse. There is so much life that includes an incredible amount of different life forms that make up a prairie. Contrast that with a modern corn or soybean field. I better stay on track here. As Karen alluded to earlier, the soil conditions determine the different types of prairie And here in Iowa, we have been blessed with the most fertile of soils. We need to examine this reality a little more closely. We have two experts to fill us in on the importance of soil in the prairie region. One is the familiar voice of Dr. Russ Benedict, who is a professor of biology at Central College and an industry-respected prairie expert. And the other voice is that of Todd Bogenschutz, the state upland biologist for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Here's what they told us about prairie soils. How would the soil in the prairie states be different at that time than it is today? So that, this is the the scientist in me. Um, Well, the answer to that, Kent, depends on where you're talking about. Um, (laughs) Because it it is really regionally based. Um, And I can answer that kind of of pretty quickly. So... um, Go to Ames, Iowa, and then head a little bit north of Ames, Iowa. You're now in the part of Iowa that's called the Des Moines Lobe. Um, So the Des Moines Lobe is the part of Iowa that was covered by the most recent glacier. Um, So 15,000 years ago, you know, if you're driving up I-35 15,000 years ago, you're going to slam into a, you know, a a thousand foot tall sheet of ice. (laughs) That's Um, crazy. So the the ice was there that recently. Um, And so that soil there is is super recent. Um, Mm -hmm. As those glaciers melted back, they dumped a whole bunch of material onto onto the soil surface. Um, and that material was was picked up in various places in Canada and, and the northern states. Um, and so you're, you're picking up all these different kinds of rocks. You're banging them together. You're crushing it down into fine, fine flour-like material. And then the glaciers melt away and just dump all that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the parent material that these, these soils are made out of. Um, but here, where we are, um, just between um, Knoxville and Pella, 
Um, the glaciers were last here probably about 500,000 years ago. Mm. Um, and so our glacier, our soils here are not near as rich. Um, there's been time for erosion to occur and rinse a lot of those really good soils down into the streams and down into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, so we still have decent soils here, but we don't have those spectacular soils that you see up on the, on the Des Moines lobe. Um, so, so to some extent, what would the, the soils have looked like to the very first um, pioneer settlers? Probably similar, just deeper versions of whatever is there, but whatever is there varies quite a bit across the, across the state. The, the thought is that you know, the prairies now working on top of those, those glacial soil materials um, you know, and growing there for 10, 20, 30,000 years. It was that length of time that produced the spectacular soils. Um, so, so by the time the, you know, the prairie settlers arrived, it was mostly already there. Um, and then unfortunately now we're, we're taking it for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in a way, we, through, through modern agricultural practice, we create new soil. We fertilize um, either through animal waste or uh, uh, more commonly uh, through, uh, you know, manufactured fertilizers. Um, but we really can't recreate that soil quality to the extent that it was in a short amount of time right right so and, and part of that i think is because of the complexity of those soils mm. that were dumped um you know there's there's a thousand different kinds of chemicals there half of which are decent plant nutrients um so us coming back in and just adding a handful of those you know specific chemicals um recreate some stuff but not the not the whole mix yeah so we can in short order take away something that took a very long time right. to gain right. Have you ever heard any experts on soil and, and uh, uh, agricultural practices give a timeline of how much longer they think Iowa soils can hold out? No, I don't. I don't think I remember that. You know, you hear a lot about we lose X number of inches or whatever mm -hmm. per year. Um, and maybe the, the answer to why I haven't specifically heard that is, again, because it varies so much by mm -hmm. region. You know, again, those, those soils up in northern Iowa were, were pretty darn thick and super rich, but ours here in this southern part of Iowa were a little bit thinner. So maybe because it varies so much, they, they don't try and predict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I haven't. I haven't really heard the answer. Yeah, to I'm not. I mean, I, I, you could start getting really into doom and gloom there. But I was just, right. uh, mm -hmm. I was just curious if there was any talk about it. But you know, the other big thing, and you mentioned this for your home state, New York, glaciers were a big part of um, how Iowa ended up being a prairie state. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that too? Well, sure. There's been several glacial advances that have come across Iowa. Of course, the most recent one, 10,000 years ago, kind of really impacted the north, central, northwest part of the state, mm -hmm. kind of the Des Moines lobe. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure any student that's gone to school in Iowa is kind of familiar with our geology yeah. and stuff. And so our newest soils, um, you know, the, the soils of up from that glacier, obviously one of the things first settlers were shocked at when they come into Iowa was there was no rocks. Yeah. That's I mean, true. if you think about New York, Ohio Valley, I mean, mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know, they had to get the trees out of there and then you had to get all the rocks before you could even start farming it. 
Gosh, you came to Iowa, drop a match, you're like, good to go. Yeah, not that's a right. anyway. I mean, they thought they died and went to heaven. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, that that's what kind of really made probably Iowa explode, Illinois as well. You know, Minnesota, just coming out here, that glacial advantage and not having that rock to deal with. And, and obviously, a lot of it treeless mm-hmm. was even better. I mean, you're talking about standing behind a horse, you know, pulling, pulling a plow. So, I mean. Yeah. That was really big for them, but yeah, I mean, so that really shaped our our uh, our landscape in Iowa. So some of our oldest soils are kind of northeast Iowa on the uh, in that region where you actually do see rock in Iowa. One of the few yeah, places right, that yep. you do see it, um, you know. But we did have glacial advances before that. It's just they were many thousands of years before the most recent one. So. Our flattest soils are the most recent one. The glaciers come down, you know, kind of those chunks of ice melted. That kind of gave us our pothole, you know, because it didn't all melt evenly. And, of course, mm-hmm. made the Des Moines River Valley and, you know, obviously the Missouri River and the, and the Mississippi River drained those glaciers as they retreated. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Lus, the Lus Hills on the western side of the state was the sand deposits blowing off those huge wetlands you know that you know this didn't happen overnight it was over courses of thousands of years and so Mm -hmm. you know at some point way back then the Lus Hills were like big sand dunes at that time Mm -hmm. you know obviously now we see them all vegetated and uh, it's a very productive soil as well so you get into southern Iowa's kind of those soils are from the glacier that was you know whatever before that many thousands of years and so a lot more weather on them, so they are eroded a little bit by rainfall through time, but still fairly productive soils. But obviously our soils up in northern Iowa are very productive mm-hmm. from the most recent glacier and kind of drove the, the whole book there. Yeah. Uh, a country so mm. full of game, that was a very productive environment. Very flat, a lot of water. Wetlands make very good soils, really high organic matter, native prairie, deep roots, kind of just maximizes that organic matter in the soil so yeah mm-hmm. when folks came here and started breaking up our prairie soils and planting it was like this grows twice of what we ever saw you know mm. when we came yeah. from ohio or whatever so does anyone else think we need to have a glacier appreciation day all across the midwest it could be another banker's holiday that only the prairie states get to take off from work and then everyone who is referred to us as the mid-waste flatlanders and flyover states can be jealous of us for once a great big booyah to all you coastal scallywags out there okay petty rant over the glaciers clearly made the way for our prairies especially the tall grass prairies by providing us with the great soil we still depend on and we are getting an episode ahead here, but as Nicholas, Todd, and Dr. Benedict began speaking about how these soils have been used and abused over the last 150 years, prairie was the protector of that soil. Since the big plow up, the soil has faced significant threats, washing much of it away through erosive winds and water runoff. Here's Karen and the original Hoxie himself our founder, Carol Hoxbergen, to explain how this has taken place. Another thing I hear about that is just so hard to picture is the depth of that topsoil. Mm-hmm. So would it, you hear like 10, 12 feet of topsoil. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, literally, if somebody was taking a shovel at that time and they were digging down, it would be black dirt that far. That's Yeah. 
That's crazy. And so it since is. then, it's just eroded off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, you know, like we were talking about the drain tiles um, that were put in helped speed up the erosion um, and just, you know, clearing all that vegetation and having exposed soil. Um, so, that, yeah, a lot of erosion and a lot of that ended up down in the in the creek bottoms. and. So the early day, early down. prairies, you know, like, picture during the winter when you get these hard blowing blizzards you know right. mm-hmm. uh that prairie grasses would hold the snow and today's fields you know it's mm-hmm. all around the homesteads or in the ditch yeah and those mm-hmm. fields are open you know yeah. they don't have much mm-hmm. snow out there after a blizzard <clears throat> yeah and so that helps build the, the moisture that the prairie needs oh, by keeping yeah. it all That's there point and rather than have it all channeled over here and then that all has an effect on the runoff, the, the rate of runoff of the it's water to our streams. At first, the prairie needed the soil. Now, the soil needs prairie. Interesting how things have changed. More on that, though, in episode three of this series. Karen and Carol both referenced another aspect of the prairie landscape that we don't spend enough time talking about. The hydrology of the prairie. What was going on with the water systems that also shaped the landscape? In episode one, we spent time talking about some of the ancient peat bogs and river drainage systems. But even those changed in many ways since the filling in of the prairies. And they were certainly different from what we see now. To fill us in more on this important feature, we asked Karen to provide a description of prairie water systems. If you see uh, Walnut Creek here, which is, you know, not a huge stream, but it's like at least 10 feet deep and and maybe 10 feet wide, maybe a little long wider. But um, there's historic accounts of people driving their wagons across Walnut Creek, you know, horse and wagons. Well, you look at that creek. You'd never try to drive yeah. a horse and wagon across okay, that I'm so, creek. I'm, I'm so, so glad you brought that up. Because <laughs> Ken and I have talked about this a bunch yeah. of times. So, so you, that makes sense. So it was because these creeks were shallower and wider, then it was, it was a, some, it was a feasible feat to get across it. Yeah. Cause I mean, dropping that wagon, we, I mean, you're going to snap that wagon right in half going down that big and (laughs) back. I don't know if the horse could make it either. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's fascinating. Do you think there was a lot more like uh, swamp bottomland? as well as you know marshy areas yeah at that time too because that water was allowed to spread out more Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know what we have was probably mostly uh sedge meadow i mean from what the descriptions we've read um from the the surveys the original uh, general land office surveys um so sedge meadow but you know that can be if it, if it gets a little wetter there's there's more uh, you know it's kind of a gradient between sedge meadow and marsh sure. mm, that's so. that's interesting yeah because i mean the way we think of it we think of it there is water there and it is a pond or it is dry and you can drive across it but it would not it would have been a, a gradient so there would have mm-hmm. been a lot of areas i wonder if set, a lot of settlers were kind of like well, that looks not too bad. We should probably go take some steps in it to see how muddy it actually is, yeah. you know, because it could actually, you know, look mm-hmm. drier than it is. Or, But I wonder how, what part the sedges played in it in holding, um, holding the ground together and, and stopping erosion. Because 
we have sedges and they come they come in pretty thick but and they're like they're, they're big and bushy they're clumpy yeah yeah, yeah. kind of kind of a, a clump grass well not a grass a sedge but mm-hmm. yeah and they kept the i mean the whole hydrology was different underground the the water wasn't like you know, drained off with the with the tiles so that now the water table is so much lower and there there was water just below the surface even if it wasn't mm. on the mm. surface because the sedge meadows might dry out um in the summer but um but there'd be water just below the surface deep soils anchored in place by diverse prairies with wide shallow streams sedge meadows and wetlands what a beautiful picture of the foundation of prairie ecosystems But as important as all of these factors are, the prairie just ain't the prairie without its wildlife. And let's be honest, that's probably what you're wanting to hear about the most anyway. Dr. Benedict and Todd are experts on this very topic, and they will introduce us to many of the wildlife species that were occupying the prairie at that time. A lot of animals are gone from Iowa today. In fact, if you looked at Iowa, especially for, and and, I mean, you're, you're a biology professor, so you want, you probably would like to say, well, what about all the small mammals too? But <laughs> but it's easy to focus on the the big, you know, charismatic species that can still be found in a lot of other states. Um, I think when you look at Iowa, we uh, we're known for a few species, um, especially from you know a sportsman's uh, viewpoint. But when you look at the diversity of life in our state it lacks compared to a lot of other uh, states or, or, you know, let's get rid of the political boundary side of it, just regions of our country. Can you kind of paint a picture for us what uh, uh, Iowa would have looked like, you know, coming out of the, you know, ways after the last ice age. So we don't need to look at Pleistocene megafauna here, but of course everything that survives that's big and, mammalian is applies to see megafauna but but uh you know some of the the more storied you know things that pioneers would have seen when they first made it to iowa what kind of critters would have been here yeah so so the the big grazers out on the prairies would have been bison Mm -hmm. um kind of obviously um we probably didn't have quite as big a numbers here as we would if you would have seen further west but certainly they were here um the other animal that we don't always associate today with prairies but definitely are a prairie animal and that's elk Mm -hmm. um you know people Today, well, I, I saw elk up in the mountains of Colorado, so they must be mountain animals. No, they're, they're grassland animals is mm. what they are, and they were common here. Um, possibly as common as bison. Um, we also had quite a few mule deer, and mule deer are really more of a prairie deer. Um, you know, mm-hmm. whitetails are really kind of a forest edge animal, but mule deer are, are a wide open prairie animal. Um, their main predators, we certainly would have had mountain lions here. We would have had, um, if we go back far enough, we would have had this, this wolf, this thing called the, the prairie wolf. Um, and it was, it wasn't its own species. It was what's referred to as a subspecies of the, the wolf that is still alive today. A little bit smaller bodied, but longer legged, really designed for running on the open grasslands. Um, so we would have had pretty good numbers of those. They weren't, they weren't able to do anything with an adult bison, but they were certainly picking off the little babies and that kind of stuff along the edges. Um, all you have to do is get a little ways over into Nebraska and you start picking up grizzly bears, but there's no real hint that grizzly bears were Mm. here in, in Iowa. Um, 
let's see, certainly had black bears in pretty good numbers. Um, so, so really nothing, uh, yes, we had more species here, but nothing like really exotic. Well, obviously, I wasn't alive back then either. So all I can do is like, you know, like I've read the book and, and a few others like that. And so it's really based off that some of Leopold's work and then Dr. Dinsmore with a country so full of game did a really great mm -hmm. job of kind of condensing it into a single book. But, you know, when you look at the early pioneers, when they cross the Mississippi and come into Iowa, even before it was platted out or anything, I mean, one of the first comments that I saw about, you know, north central Iowa and up through there was it's just this colossal wasteland of grass and there's wetlands everywhere and it's hard to get through and there's lots of bugs and, <laughs> and but, you know, there was waterfowl and upland game birds like nobody's business, mm. which is probably not a surprise. So and then when you got to the forested areas, you know, obviously there was a lot of Mature oak timber, obviously elk, bison, deer uh, were our primary ungulates through there. We probably had actually more elk and the stuff that I've read than bison. Mm. Um, we wow. did That's have some woodland bison. I mean, we say bison and people think kind of the plains herds that numbered sure. in the millions. They don't, you know, the stuff I've read doesn't think that was the case in, in Iowa, except up in the northwest part, it sounds like we did have kind of some of that similar plains type stuff. But when you got over into this part of the state, over toward Dubuque and those areas, more woodland bison, so maybe smaller herds, but that probably elk were mm. super abundant. You hear a lot of records, and a lot of the towns in Iowa have keep even that Elkton, Elk River. You yeah. Know. So it's amazing when you look across the cities of Iowa, how many have elk in them. Yeah, that's true. It tells you historically, you know, how important the, the early you know pilgrims used uh, deer and elk so some of the records we read prairie chickens were just super abundant um something that you know the, the the early settlers used a lot i mean it wasn't like there was grocery stores or anything else i mean you kind of provided your own needs and so mm -hmm. those were a common species um quail were not very abundant from what we can see from the original records they really kind of took off like when we started settling the state much like jackrabbits did actually made a much more favorable environment for quail when we early started farming mm. than at settlement and, of course and, pheasants weren't here at all I mean, pheasants right. came in when prairie chickens kind of collapsed Wow, doesn't that just get you excited to hear about all of the different critters that lived on our soil not that long ago? It is honestly one of my favorite topics to learn about. It's also a curious thing to consider how much change there has been from the days when Pleistocene megafauna ruled the same stretch of ground. I'm sure there are some significant lessons to be learned from those two shifts in wildlife populations. But we need to learn more about these animals just in general and how they lived on our old-time landscape. Here's more from Todd. The rivers uh, in Iowa, that's something we haven't talked a lot about yet in this series. We talked a little bit with Dr. Benedict. But a very unique thing about Iowa is we're bookended by our two biggest rivers, which eventually become one just south of our border. And uh, how would that have shaped those so maybe you know we obviously the main idea here of this podcast is to talk about prairie but we had some more riparian wooded parts to our state too at that time right at, at the pre-settlement era would those areas just have been pretty vast swampy woodlands along those rivers would you expect at that time um well you kind of got to think about it you know i try to you know for folks that 
aren't wildlife biologists, I try to frame it, you know, go back to, you know, Wild Kingdom and stuff and think about those shows you've seen on Africa and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you got to remember, we had a lot of elk. We did have some bison. We still always had deer and turkey, bear, mountain lions, all wolves, you know, all those critters were here at that time. And Mm -hmm. so stuff that we see is probably... Even with the turkeys, I find it cool to to read about them. That you know, in the winter time, probably everything did condense around those woody corridors, especially things like elk, bison. You know, we got mm-hmm. big storms on the prairie, and so this is where they could graze. And snow didn't maybe get quite as deep. Oh, of course, really? it had the That's water. Fascinating. So you know, concentrating those animals probably had an impact. Yeah. On that structure and kept it more open than probably what we see sure. today, when most of our woodlands just sit idle and they can kind of. You know, whereas yeah. annually they usually got probably hit pretty hard. And so mm. I wouldn't expect that they, you know, I think there was some thickness, you know, because I think what happened in the spring and summertime is a lot of those animals went out on the prairie. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Indians setting fire. The Indians are pretty wise to the fact that, you know, when you burn something in the spring, it actually wasn't attracting because you got that really flush, green growth growing no old vegetation, very high nutrition. Yeah. I mean, they weren't dumb. They knew, you know, how to kind of draw animals to them rather than, you know, kind of trying to just go out and chase the animals. So, Mm -hmm. of course, there was natural fires that did that too, lightning or whatever. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think it, you know, I think the dynamic that was happening here in the Great Plains was not all that different than what you see in Africa when you watch Mm -hmm. kind of that natural environment over there with wildebeest. And, you know, we were, obviously, we're in a northern climb, so... You know, you do have that snow impact, but um, I've got records here along the Boone River, you know, like it was in Dinsmore's book, I think, or another publication I read that, you know, they had a bad winter and like the, the, the last elk disappeared from central Iowa here along the Des Moines River in like around 1840. Hmm. They had a really bad winter and settlers were out and actually could kill them with a pitchfork. The snow was deep enough they could just... Yeah, I do remember news like for that. Food source, yep. and, you know, which was really important to the settlers at the time, but gives you some of the dynamic that, you know, probably was going on before, you know, we got here. What a fascinating picture Todd painted for us of wildlife on the prairie at that time. These critters were truly living an unfenced existence, free to migrate to the different types of habitat that met their immediate needs. Todd brought up a new variable for our prairie wildlife conversation as well fire many of our most educated listeners probably yelled a collective finally when todd mentioned this but hold your four-toed horses oops wrong episode they are already extinct during this episode anyway hold on because we will dive into this topic of prairie burning more later on in this episode But for now, we need to learn a little more about wildlife behavior and more specifically about the bison. Here's Karen. Can you see a difference where the buffaloes had roamed? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The bison made a big difference too because they uh, prefer grasses over forbs in general. And so they will graze down the grasses. And that Mm. actually helps the forbs by, you know, taking away that that competition. Wow. Um, so yeah, the, yeah, the bison have a lot to do with that. Um, yeah, I'm really glad Carol asked that question because yeah. that that goes to a conversation Carol and I were having. I think it was last week when I was asking Carol about some of the species that don't handle fire all that well. Some of the grass species like uh, the rye, um, so candle wild rye, Virginia wild rye. 
Harry Wild Rye. Um, also, Sidoats Grama doesn't take it very yep, good. Yep, Sidoats yeah. Grama, and uh, there's one June Grass, a Prairie June Grass. Mm-hmm. And so when we were talking, I and this is kind of what we we were thinking was the fact that those species persisted despite that because you know when those when those prairie fires were going it was mm-hmm. you know as far as we can tell huge areas burning all at mm-hmm. once and you would think then with as regular as that was happening a lot of those species would pretty much disappear from the prairie but would it have been because of those large grazers getting you know seed stock in their buffalo mains and their mm-hmm. their you know elk hair and 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 deer of course are part of that and then also all just the great number of birds that would have been on the prairie at that time were is that how those species were able to continue on just because of the animal dispersal of those seeds that probably had a lot to do with it yeah and the and the grazing. I mean, another thing about the grazing is the bison, and and I think elk too. But we have more bison than elk, even though historically in Iowa there were more elk than bison. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the grazing, they tend to go back to the same spot and graze it uh, repeatedly until you know until it gets too tall. They they prefer the shorter vegetation. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know they they had the whole prairie to to roam around and so they would be large herds and they would kind of move around i love the story about how the bison selectively graze grasses more than forbs or as most people know them as flowers one of the biggest challenges facing prairie reconstruction is the takeover of grasses Unless a prairie is managed correctly in the absence of bison, grasses will oftentimes crowd out the forbs. But in a complete prairie, these giant grazers help solve that problem. The other benefits that they have are of the seed dispersal, and that help maintain prairie diversity as well. And when you consider the wallowing behaviors of both bison and elk, it's easy to see how they may have helped the prairie as some of the OG prairie planters. Man, those critters are cool. And I hope we can have them back roaming free on the prairies again someday. More on that in a few minutes. One thing folks such as myself can be guilty of is focusing solely on the charismatic megafauna of all of the different ecosystems around the planet. This is a mistake though, because even though they are really interesting and really important, the health of the ecosystem is usually even more dependent on the small critters. And I'm talking about insects. When discussing prairie, it's impossible to not discuss the importance of pollinating insects such as bees. We asked Karen for more information about these vital contributors. And I gotta warn you, your heart is about to be broken and your world shaken. Here's Karen. It was uh, heartbreaking for me when I learned that honeybees are not native to, <laughs> to, to a North America. Yeah, They're yeah, a Eurasian yeah. species. Now, we have a lot of our own bee species that are mm-hmm. native to, yeah. to America, but, but uh, the honeybees are not, correct? Right. Yep. Those were brought in. But that would honey. be an example of one of those non-native species that Nicholas was mm-hmm. talking about earlier that we're happy to have, and they, they serve a valuable role now in, in uh, helping pollinate our remaining Yeah, prairies. I mean, they're... 
if there weren't honeybees here, the the native bees would do the job. But you know, I heard that dandelions are good for honeybees, but they're not actually good for our native bees. I don't I don't know. I heard uh, native habitat project. Um, Kyle Larbarger. 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 He uh, he was saying that. I don't know how true that is, but he seems like a fairly informed guy. Well, I mean, if it, yeah. if they're both from Eurasia originally, which I believe they are, mm-hmm. that would make sense that they would have that relationship already. Yeah. I mean, the problem is everything is so uh, altered <laughs> from right. what it was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> historically. So, you know, there are some early um, bees, native bees, that are out looking for food, and dandelions are blooming. So I think they'll, they'll use them some, but... Mm. But, you know, before dandelions and before honeybees, there were plenty of native yeah, plants yeah. that were blooming at that time. Um, so it's just, it's all, especially, you know, in town, there's, there's not a whole lot of native wildflowers yeah. in, in cities, um, but there's plenty of Get your of backyard pollinator. Get your backyard <laughs> yeah. pollinator, guys. So, so yeah, is yeah. the difference in consideration between honeybees and native bees, is it just that honeybees exist in these large colonies, whereas the native bee species are they more like they live in holes in the ground or in a tree or and they aren't so so communal is that is that kind of the difference there? yeah for the most part most of the native bees are more solitary um there's some social uh bees too but not as not as much as honeybees um yeah, and I, I just want to correct myself because I said the native bees would do the job, but you know they would do the job in native uh, pollinating native plants. But with these monocultures of crops we yeah. grow, you know, like the fruit orchards and stuff yes. like that. That yeah, there's probably not as many of the native bees that mm-hmm. would be available in those areas. So that's why they bring in the the beehives. So so they do serve that purpose, and of course you get honey from them. So that's right. That's, yeah, that's yeah we love that. <laughs> oh, the pain. It hurts almost as bad as when I found out that pheasants aren't native to American prairies like I had assumed for much of my life. Honeybees, although beloved by us here at Hoxie, and probably you as well, are not native to American prairies or America at all. They are newcomers. But Karen makes a good point, one that I use when explaining why pheasants should still be valued as newcomers as well. The prairie ecosystems that exist today have been altered in so many ways that if we have some new wildlife species that show up and don't harm the ecosystem and maybe even occupy some empty niche within that ecosystem, why not welcome them in? All that to say, we should value even more the native bees that do belong here, and if we want to help them, we need to supply them with their native food sources which are prairie forbs. Speaking of non-native newcomer species, remember earlier when I mentioned how most reconstructed prairies lack wildlife components that would make these prairies healthier? That's the point we are going to finish our conversation on about prairie wildlife. Taylor Keene is going to weigh in on this very issue, and he's going to reference another species that ain't from around here. What would really be ideal? The return of bison to the plains. Um, mm-hmm. Bison rather than cows. Cows are an invasive species, and mm-hmm. I've got a, you know I come from a cattle family, mm-hmm. um, and it's really inflammatory to a lot of people. But it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Europeans came here and tucked their world and tried to re 
create everything here. Mm -hmm. And so we have to find a a new land ethic, Mm -hmm. one that is just more than, you know, we are these powerful um, stewards. The indigenous perspective is that we're to be a participant alongside of what's what's happening we're not mm-hmm. any greater or not there are uh, some teachings uh, that were shared with me from um, an odawa elder uh, from canada dr uh, cecil king and um, the main thing is the the law of orders and i made a promise now some years ago to share this story mm-hmm. but the law of orders says that for there to be harmony on Mother Earth, uh, the first order is the plant order, plant nation, as, mm-hmm. as we call them. And they're to be first in priority. Mm-hmm. Second is, is the animals, because the animals depend upon the plants. Third, tertiary, is us, mm-hmm. the human beings. We must keep ourselves there, or we will but destroy ourselves. And these are ancient teachings, but I find them still relevant uh, today. Being a participant alongside of what's happening in nature, that's a powerful suggestion from Taylor, and one that was modeled by the first peoples of the prairie. I think if all people could find a position like that from time to time, they would be able to see the moving parts of a healthy ecosystem and would value preserving and restoring more than removing and replacing our natural landscapes. Taylor's example of viewing the three levels of natural systems as first plants, then animals, followed by humans, serves as a good organizational layout for this episode. We talked about the foundational plants, we talked about the resident wildlife, and now we need to discuss the people that were found on the prairie During this time in history, there really is no one better to teach us about this topic than Taylor. I think a lot of times people assume that a Native American who lived on the prairie, they get this picture of, you know, Plains tribes, Indians that uh, would have, you know, been following bison, you know, shooting bison from horseback. Uh, and uh you know almost nomadic living is that a you know is that a totally inaccurate way of, of looking at things as far as you know all tribes on the prairie would have been nomadic you know not really super interested in agriculture um uh kind of following the food living you know almost hand to mouth kind of where you know this this is the season that we're in now we're going to gather these berries for this number of weeks and that's what we're going to eat for this number of weeks. And then we're going to go to, you know, maybe this root or something like that, or this, this wild plant of some other kind. And, Oh, this is the time of year that we hunt. Is it, was it all like that? Or is it super, you know, parsed apart into, you know, people, tribes living maybe in like Iowa, we're doing some farming. Whereas tribes living in Wyoming were, you know, like more of the short grass prairie, they were doing more of the nomadic thing. Could you kind of give like a, I know it's a huge, that's a ton of information, obviously, to break apart, but like maybe like a general idea as to how that would have. Sure. Been. I mean, when we're talking about stereotypes, it's, it's uh, much more convenient to lump mm-hmm. uh, populations into one thing. And when you look at the historical 
record. It was nearly a demonization, whether mm-hmm. that was in the media with Walt Disney or yeah. it, it, it's everywhere. The captivity narratives of uh, literature in the late 1800s, um, the lionization of pioneers and settlers, all of that perspective helped create stereotypes. John Wayne movies uh, were all affected by those things. Um, Plains stereotype, uh, in many cases, was accurate. Uh, I can speak from my uh, matrilineal tribal lineage, mm-hmm. the Omaha people, but mm-hmm. um, and probably most tribes in North America, we uh, all had um, farming. Mm-hmm. Three sisters. To say mm-hmm. that some didn't, um, you can't eat meat alone. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other things, but. Um, Yes, you know, uh, nomadic. Well, I mean, we went on a bison hunt mm-hmm. uh, when that first little flower would blossom in the in the spring. Then it was time to go. Mm, that's so and cool. We would leave our uh, corn, bean, and squash. And with the Omaha's, we have a fourth sister, the sunflower, mm-hmm. and we would leave them and not worry about watering or anything because they're drought-resistant seeds. Mm-hmm. And would literally leave them till it was the harvest moon in August. Wow. And uh, would come back and harvest then. So uh, some of those things are accurate. Um, I used to think that my two tribal lineages were very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Omaha, my mother's side, and Cherokee. And I'm Irish as well. There's a little French and German in there too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I used to think they were so different. And uh, I, I think of my father's tribe as a southeastern culture. But when you really examine the depth and the antiquity of this land, you're going to mm-hmm. see that it's very fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the Suian-speaking peoples came from the East Coast, according really? to our origin stories, and then moved westward. Why, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Cherokee origin stories say that we come from an island in the east, in the Atlantic Ocean, hmm. so Polynesian peoples, and uh, traverse through South America and up across North America to wow. finally be close to the Haudenosaunee. Uh, so, you know, it's all relative. Um, but with my dad's people, the Cherokees, um, and bison people as well, Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember as bison was being reintroduced into our tribal lifeways down in Cherokee country, the snob Plains Indian in me was like, they didn't know bison. We know bison. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so you see uh, a mix of farming and probably some nomadic perspectives. It's humbling to consider the lives of the people who first occupied these spaces in our country, the knowledge and skills they had and passed on to their descendants, as well as the understanding of how they fit into the larger picture of the ecology of the area. They farmed the legendary soils when it made sense, growing various crops and hunted the game living on the land as well, thriving in this manner for centuries. There are so many lessons to be learned from studying their methods and ideas, especially when it comes to living in tune with nature. Okay, it's time to address the big topic I promised earlier, fire. 
I hear a lot about how indigenous people used fire to manage the prairie. Let's hear from the experts on how this took place. Here's Dr. Benedict. Something that I've been hearing more, um, uh, you know, either in books or, or through other podcast interviews, it's believed that Native Americans kind of tended the prairie. They would, uh, you know, they would set the fires to expand the range of the prairie because that was their, that was their hunting ground. That if more game had habitat, more game is kind of the theory there. Mm-hmm. I imagine that probably was part of the problem too, right, is now you've lost the people that were taking care of the prairie, you know, before the settlers got there. Is that, is that also part of it too? Do you know? Yeah, that, that part, there's, there's actually kind of some argument among the, among the scientific community as to, there's no doubt that, that the, the early native Americans did impact prairies. Um, Some folks are kind of taking that all the way to one end and saying that, that tall grass prairie wouldn't be here if we didn't have native Americans. Hmm. Um, other folks are kind of way over on the other side and they're saying, Oh, the, the native Americans were so few and far between, um, that they were just little, little tiny, you know, isolated incidences and that the prairie, you know, didn't really feel their impact. Um, and so my guess is that the answer as always is probably somewhere, somewhere in, the, in middle. the middle. Um, there, there is little doubt that prairies, um, were burned very commonly by native Americans. They do that to clear areas so that they could do some farming. Um, but you, you, you kind of hinted at it. You burn a prairie, um, and the prairie greens up very quickly after that. And bison love that, mm. um, and mule deer love that. Um, and so within, you know, if you're if you're burning in, in in spring, within just weeks, you've now got you're you're bringing the grazers to you, the very grazers that you want to hunt. Um, so yeah, they were they were burning to attract the grazers. Mm. Um, you know, people often picture them, you know, burning to try and shove the all the herds of bison over cliffs and that kind of stuff. That appears to have been like an ex- super you know isolated places one or two places here and there where that happened most of the time it was just to attract the grazers man do i love that prescribed burning is a part of the prairie story some of the earliest records of land management going on in north america but all of this burning made nicholas think of a very good question if all of the prairie is being burned then where do all of the animals on the prairie go to avoid being burned in the fire? Here's Karen again to answer this critical question. But after it's been grazed a lot, that also doesn't burn as intensely as if it was not grazed. So there's not as much duff there uh, to burn. So some of those pockets could be missed because of that. Also, you know, just just wetter places where there was seeps or or that kind of thing. So they're... There's an there's an answer for one of Nick's questions he asked Doctor uh, Benedict, and I didn't even think of that. I'm glad I'm really glad you said that. Remember when you asked how could all these like bison and elk and deer mm-hmm. and everything survive these prairie fires when they're you know there's nowhere to run? Yeah. Well, now it makes sense. They're already mowing. It's kind of like if mm-hmm. you if you needed to if your back is up against the wall and you got to get your CRP burned by this date and it's super tall well mow it first and then your fire will be you know much more manageable and so that that's probably the main answer to that question i would think yeah they created their own fire break around themselves yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's yeah that is so interesting to, that's fascinating because if you just like even sit and think about it for a little bit you know you would maybe come to that conclusion but just being like how do they survive? You know, because yeah, wildfires, question. especially, you know, if they're not burning every year, you know, let's say a fire breaks out on a prairie every 
four years back then. I don't, I have no idea what happened, but if you get four years worth of biomass on switchgrass, big mm. blue stem, that's, that's hot and, uh, and fast, you yeah. know, that fire, you can't outrun that. Yeah. Everyone's going to be called sparky after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, from what I've read, the fires were probably more frequent than that. If, if really, be, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Maybe not every year in a certain spot, but there was fire going on every year in the area. So maybe, you know, it, it, some some places might burn every year and others maybe every two or three uh, years, maybe longer. But uh, sure. yeah. but by then there'd be quite a bit of fuel. So yeah, burn yeah. yeah, that's I'm so glad you answered that question. I've been yeah. I've, since Nick <laughs> asked it. I've been thinking about that question at least a couple times a week. Yeah, he's actually lost through. hours of sleep from it. He's just <laughs> tossing it dirty. How That's did from, they make but it? But also, you know, the way a fire burns, it tends to be just, you know, in a prairie, it tends to be just a line of fire, and mm-hmm. they can they can also just jump over yeah, it or, yeah. you know, just... Yeah, resilient. Apparently, they can get struck by lightning and yeah. be fine. <laughs> right. yeah, so, yeah. pretty resilient. It's a little jump through the flames. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Shoo. I'm glad the animals had some good options for avoiding being burned in these fires. If you have ever been a part of a large prairie burn, you understand very well how hot those flames can get. Well, it's great getting this information from Dr. Benedict and Karen. Now I want to hear the Native American perspective on prescribed prairie burning that is credited to them. Here's Taylor's take on it. Time and time again, I hear about the role of indigenous people uh, with managing prairie with fires and mm. intentional burning. And um, I recently heard reference uh, to this yet again. I, I, one of the best parts of my job is I get to listen to books all the time while I'm working. And uh, so right now I'm listening through um, undaunted courage um, and it's an okay book. You know, there's, there's parts I like about it. There's parts that it's like, mm, I don't know. But, um, one of the things that, so I think this was directly taken from, uh, Lewis's journal was he talked about, uh, he observed that some Western tribes would set fire as a, um, way to almost protect themselves from, you know, like, now there's no nowhere for like an enemy to you know graze their horses or maybe you could almost use it as an offensive move but then i've also so that was the first time i heard it from like a a war or you know defensive strategy all the other times i've heard it mentioned was um simply as we're trying to manage this land we want it to stay prairie or even maybe expand prairie by keeping you know forested areas back is it is this like a gross oversimplification you know that's that's almost been watered down through time were were native americans doing this first of all or is this just something that that's that someone assumed in and it's just persisted and and if they were what was the the true idea behind their intention for for burning the prairies well it's a pertinent question for me right now um i've got um a book coming out probably next spring summer finally and but i'm also in negotiations for 
second book awesome. on, on the history of indigenous ag and why it's important to people mm-hmm. today. And fire is one of those things. Can, so. can you give us a book title there so people know what to look for when it's, are you allowed to share it yet? Yes, I am. Uh, it's going to be published through Inner Traditions Press okay. out of uh, New England. And uh, the title that we've agreed upon is uh, Rediscovering Turtle Island. Awesome. An indigenous people's account of sacred geography in America. Awesome. And so I've been thinking more and more about the uh, philosophical underpinnings of uh, what I refer to as living red. It's a concept which is very different than the one that we know, even uh, different than the green ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really um, treating the earth as our mother, and it's part of our religion where uh, sacred geography is at the center of everything Mm -hmm. so i've kind of set that as uh as the foundation i've been thinking a lot about um what is the extent of uh indigenous agriculture uh and to coin a phrase from uh dr jane mount pleasant who i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. uh, indigenous environmentalism Mm. And so I've been trying to figure all that out. And fire is a part of that. Um, I love to think about uh, different types of thought, esoteric thoughts, uh, all things alchemical. It's something that pertains to all of us. But when you look at fire, it is one of those elements uh, that are so important to the indigenous ag lifestyle. So... um, uh, water and sun and wind and earth, but fire mm-hmm. is a part of that. And it goes back to our cosmological stories. Um, much like Prometheus was given fire, we have those stories mm-hmm. too. And uh, it differs by tribe and cultures, but ultimately it's a, it's a gift from the upper realm, from uh, what we call the thunder beings. Mm and has manifested itself as lightning from the upper realm to the middle realm, the one that we inhabit. Mm. And that's how it starts. And a lot of our sacred stories uh, pertain to things with lightning. So many of the tribes uh, have that as something extremely sacred. If uh, an individual um, sustains a lightning strike and lives, uh, many tribes will hold them up as uh, sacred and powerful. Mm. And um, so many of the stories of uh, warfare and those ties go to lightning, and lightning was the giver of fire. So whether uh, it was purely natural, uh, it was certainly picked up and encouraged. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no doubt about it. Native Americans used fire to keep the prairies in good health and for other reasons that allowed them to live as participants in the natural systems taking place around them. During our interview, Taylor mentioned his friend, author, Charles Mann, multiple times. I have enjoyed listening to Charles's book titled 1491 while working in the fields at Hoxie, so I know well who he's talking about. Taylor instructed me to read or listen to Charles's sequel titled 1493, so I could learn more about this method of prairie management. I did just that, 
And one of the most fascinating facts in the book told of the theory that the Little Ice Age was at least partially brought on by the loss of prairie burning following the tragic death rates of Native Americans after they contracted smallpox once Europeans began sailing to the Americas. Because of the immense amount of carbon dioxide given off by these vast prairie fires, a greater greenhouse effect would have been created, resulting in an increase in global temperatures during the years of frequent burning. Once the burning diminished, the greenhouse gas of carbon dioxide also diminished, causing a drop in global temperature. I'm not sure if this theory will ever become widely accepted, but it carries weight in this former science teacher's mind. Charles also talks about another theory for what happened to the wildlife once the indigenous caretakers were nearly wiped out by smallpox. Taylor speaks about it here. My dear friend Charles Mann, hmm. uh, as he was working on his uh, next work on the West, um, by the way, I think Sacred Seed's going to be in it. He was out That's here for awesome. three or four days. That's and awesome. We talked and talked and talked and talked. And one of the perspectives that he brought up was really interesting when you're talking about uh, nomadic tribes chasing bison. And his theory was that um, something uh, impacted uh, indigenous peoples, and we both agree it was probably smallpox, mm. uh, to the point... Um, that there was not a natural balance. Humans played a part in that balance of controlling population herds. Mm -hmm. And because of that devastation, and probably began as early as 1500s with the conquistadors, mm -hmm. but by the time that you have this stereotypical narrative of you know huge bison herds going by for, for days at a time, uh, mm -hmm. thundering across, that was because no one was hunting them. Mm -hmm. And so he has this theory, which I, I find very plausible, that that little narrative was, you know, the result of uh, germs hmm. and smallpox. And therefore, these huge herds became this picturesque thing. It's devastating to hear about the loss that the indigenous people groups of North America suffered from the diseases and expansion of European immigrants. There's no pretty way to paint it because it wasn't pretty, and in many ways it was wrong, but it is a part of the story, and Taylor sums it up very well here in his closing statement. The Columbian Exchange transformed this land, uh, ecocide first, which led to near genocide of indigenous mm -hmm. peoples, and you know you can go from any perspective, guns, germs, and steel, mm -hmm. uh, smallpox was the real devastator. Yeah. Uh, there were a handful of skirmishes, but um, no major, major Indian wars, uh, the way that people want to remember them. Of course, there was, you know, French-Indian War and lots of other battles, but smallpox devastated indigenous mm -hmm. peoples. Uh, at the very least, conservative, 50% of the populations died. That's crazy. Uh, here in Nebraska, 80 to 85 to 90% Whoa. of uh, indigenous Whoa. peoples died from smallpox. And so all of us have survived, uh, for the most part, um, mm -hmm. COVID-19, and we were terrified by it. Yeah. But nothing compared to what smallpox did to indigenous peoples. And so... Um, impact of all those was the near 
erasure of yeah. uh, flora and fauna and the people mm-hmm. of, of uh, North America. And when you understand that history, it's, it's really hard, one, to wrap one's mind around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, two is how do you reconcile it when you know the history? Because I was just like everyone else. You know, I was taught a certain history that included Columbus and Thanksgiving and all these pretty <laughs> yeah. scenarios, yeah. which really didn't happen. Right. And it became part of a narrative. It was only as I got older that I began to understand that if you take a country by force mm-hmm. uh, and coercion, then you have to have a story to go along with it. Mm-hmm. And um, whether that's here in the Plains or down in uh, Oklahoma, which was Indian territory, all of the diasporas of the indigenous peoples out of the land and not only ignoring their perspective, but trying to erase all the people. Mm -hmm. And so I know at certain points I've come across people uh, in uh, Nebraska and Iowa who think that all Indians are extinct, and we're Mm not. We're still here, Mm -hmm. and we shall remain. Those are powerful words from Taylor. I'm proud to be his friend. I've learned so much from him and look forward to continuing to learn more in the future. As he stated, the Columbian Exchange brought in a new era for the prairie. European explorers, followed by trappers and surveyors, began to get their first taste of the prairie. And there would be an ocean of people following close behind to grab a piece for themselves. That's where the story will conclude in Episode 3 of The Prehistoric Prairie. Hoxie Native Seeds is the presenting sponsor of the Prairie Farm Podcast and hopes you have enjoyed listening to Episode 2 of the Prehistoric Prairie Series. We want to take the time to thank all of our guests who have participated in this project. If you are feeling inspired to help bring back a piece of the mighty prairie, you can order your own prairie seeds at hoxienativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com. Thank you for tuning in. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend or family member because we believe our message has the power to change minds. And conservation happens one mind at a time.